Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. This week, Theresa May prepares for her last shot with Brussels, but can she get what she wants? I also talk to Stephen Gibbs, a journalist on the ground in Caracas, about the nightmare in Venezuela. And finally, we take a look at another big issue of the day, are induction hobs simply reinventing the wheel? Now, with this week's votes in Parliament, Theresa May has been given one last chance to save her version of Brexit. But will she succeed? James Forsyth writes in his cover article this week that there is a sliver of hope. The EU might budge, and even Labour MPs might be one on side. James joins me now, together with Peter Foster, the Telegraph's Europe editor from Brussels. So, James, just explain to us where we are after this week's votes. Uh, This week has been a remarkable week, because when Theresa May came back with her deal... She made a massive point that this was the best deal, the only deal negotiable, essentially, that it wasn't going to get better than this. She has now been forced to eat her words by Parliament. She is now saying she's going to go back and replace the back, try and replace the backstop with alternative arrangements in inverted commas. And I think this is a sign of, of her predicament. This is considered a triumph for her because this is undoubtedly better for her than what the alternative was earlier in the week. Because if the Brady Amendment had failed, it would suggest that there was no majority via her own party and her confidence and supply partners for anything at all. And if the Cooper Amendment had passed, it would have, by essentially saying that Parliament will never allow no deal to happen, it would have removed whatever negotiating leverage she has with the EU. This worry about what no deal might mean would have gone because it would have been clear that Parliament would never allow the government to go down that path. So she does have a chance, I don't think it's a a huge chance, but she has a chance of beginning to get something that might get the deal through Parliament. And I think that the strategy that they are now working to is something like this, which is we're not going to get Tory MPs who want a second referendum for about nine or ten, and we're not going to get all of the ERG. So can we get enough to basically reduce that ERG holdouts to 15 or 20? And then there are somewhere between 25 to 45 Labour MPs who seem open to the idea of voting for some kind of deal. Can you haul them across the line? It's a kind of Jacob Rees-Mogg, Glenn McCluskey strategy for getting a Brexit deal through. It, it is, you know, when I said to one cabinet minister, will it work? They're going to very honest answer came back, well, well, no one knows. But this is what she is determined to try. Now, Peter, on our cover this week, Theresa May is depicted being shot out of a cannon wearing a unicorn hat. Do you think that's a fair representation of what she's actually asking for from Brussels? I think the difficulty is, you know, I take uh, James's point that she has, you know, gathered some political momentum. She's shown them that there is a majority in Parliament for something. Unfortunately, the thing that, you know, in order to do that, she's had to agree to try and reopen the withdrawal agreement. Uh, and she's had to, you know, back the Malthouse Compromise, which you know, is frankly nothing short of laughable when viewed from Brussels. And so there really is no more confidence in Brussels that she's actually capable of getting anything realistic over the line now than she was before. So she gets a kind of, you know, a bump from from the vote. But in truth, when you look at what is potentially at five to midnight on the table, it's nothing close to what would be acceptable to the ERG. I mean, we saw uh, Graham Brady mooting maybe a codicil and getting massively shut down by Steve Baker and, and co. So, you know, that's the problem from the EU side. She still seems to be no closer to be able to demonstrate that she has a stable majority for a workable deal. I think one thing that helped her in the the meeting with Jeremy Corbyn yesterday is that Corbyn came out of that meeting and then attacked the backstop and said it was one-sided, he didn't like the UK signing up to something it couldn't leave. 
And I think that was more helpful than number 10 were expecting, because I think there is a slight view that, oh, you know, if you just did a deal with Labour, everything would be fine. I think it was a reminder that the official Labour position is still hostile to the backstop. From an EU perspective, if you are, as Jeremy Hunt said on the radio, you know, committed to the Good Friday in all its aspects, etc., then why do you want to create a clause that would allow you to unilaterally walk away from a backstop that guarantees a no hard border? You know, if you don't want to do it, why do you want the facility to walk away? And that, I think, is a, is a real question, because from a EU perspective, this backstop, you know, contains the thing that Mrs May wanted, which is an all UK customs union, precisely to try and keep the democratic unionists on board, to try and limit the extent to which Northern Ireland was treated differently, to preserve the United Kingdom. And she's got that. And she's so missold that she's lost by 230 votes. And now she wants an exit mechanism from something which she essentially created. James, how is Theresa May going to approach her discussions with Brussels? Is she going to turn up and sort of wave the results of Tuesday's vote at negotiators and say, come on, guys? Or is she going to take a softer approach? So I think her current strategy, and I think this is this is a, a work in progress. You know, one cabinet minister said to me, you know, this isn't grand political strategy, this is brinksmanship and holding your nerve. And I think her plan is to essentially say, look, none of us want no deal. I told you the problem was the backstop when I lost by 230 votes. You said, no, it's not the backstop. It's actually the fact that the political declaration isn't clear enough about where it points. Parliament wants a softer Brexit. The fact that this vote passed with a majority of 16 is proof that it really is the backstop. So so can we do something on the backstop? I think that is essentially going to be what her message is. And I think the other thing she's going to try and exploit is the inherent uh, logical contradiction in the backstop, which is, you know, the one thing that means that there would almost certainly have to be a hard border on the island of Ireland would be no deal. So if the backstop is the thing that causes no deal, it will create precisely what it is designed to avoid. And I think she will try and push on that point. And I think there will also be a, a, a kind of gentle pointing out that given that the Irish will have a veto on any UK-EU trade treaty, putting a sunset clause onto this backstop of five years or so isn't actually the Irish giving up very much leverage. Peter, what are you hearing in Brussels about what European leaders are going to be asking for? So I think leaving aside the intra-EU politics of what you do about the Irish who are so dug in on the backstop, I don't see, you know, I talk to, you know, EU ambassadors, EU officials who will say that at five to midnight, if it's a choice between a no deal that creates a hard border and a sunset clause, then that kind of sunset clause wouldn't necessarily be ruled out. No one's making any firm predictions. I think the problem we've got is it's almost a sequencing problem. She lost so badly last time that, you know, can she really get the deal together and get it over the line in one shot? Because from an EU perspective, why give her that? Let's say they gave her that next week. Would she, and she put the thing to a meaningful vote, would it go over? And if it did go over, would it go over with a majority that's stable enough to guarantee that the implementation bill and the ratification of the treaty actually happens. And so I think, you know, there is a kind of inertia on on this side because, you know, she is so unable to demonstrate that she has a majority. And the only way she got a majority was by pandering to <coughs> ideas that are never going to fly. And I, so I, I, I don't hear a lot of appetite for 
a kind of another two step two step process, which is kind of what the Brits are arguing for. You know, this is momentum. Help us build momentum. You know, when the only way she got that vote over the line was to promise a whole load of unicorns, as the front cover of the, of the magazine <laughs> points to. And what about the possibility of an extension? So I think all EU member states are clear that they would have an extension if they were asked for one. I think a longer extension, We, you know, there's reports that the French and the Germans want longer extensions because, frankly, a three-month extension that doesn't fix anything just creates you know, a massive headache before the next European Parliament is convened. But there will be conditions attached on money, on following the ECJ and the Brits having a plan. Because you know, if you talk about long extensions, then still now the lawyers in this town in Brussels, where I am now, don't have a fix. And it's almost certain, it seems to me, that if you're going to have a 21 month or a one year extension, that you're going to have to have European elections in the UK. And that creates another huge set of problems. James. I mean, European Parliament elections in the UK would, would obviously create a problem because, first of all, lots of voters would say, we thought we voted to leave this thing. Why have we been asked to vote in these elections? I also think politically there are people in both main parties, but particularly the Labour Party, who worry that that European Parliament election would be the vehicle for a new party to emerge. That, that European Parliament election would end up being fought on leave remain grounds and you could end up with the party system kind of fracturing as, you know, you have a kind of let's just leave party standing eating into a Tory vote. And then you have a kind of a party standing on a, a, on a kind of let's just remain eating into some of the Labour vote. I think that that is a that is a worry. I think that there are, you know, I think if it came to it, the UK government would be happy to give up its its seats in the European Parliament. But obviously, as Peter says, there's a question about how legally could you make that happen? So how likely is it that there's going to be some kind of deal, James, that will satisfy Conservative MPs? So I think when it comes to Brexit, you've got to think in terms of the least unlikely option. I don't think anything is likely, but the least... I still think that the least unlikely option is that at some point latish in the day, a deal eventually passes the House of Commons, that there is a technical extension to Article 50 granted, and the UK tries to rush through the legislation before the first day of the new European Parliament term. I still think that is the least unlikely route. I think a lot depends on what happens in this next vote that follows February the 13th, because the question is, if there is no deal by then, which I think, so no, no new agreement by then, which I think is probably likely, does the Cooper Amendment will be brought back does that pass then or not? I think if that doesn't pass then, then I think that will be quite a surprise to quite a lot of people in the EU because Peter would know much more about this than me, but the sense I get from EU ambassadors here is that they expect that the Commons will move to take no deal off the table in a meaningful way at some point quite soon. If that doesn't happen, then I think you do get more into the kind of brinksmanship of the five minutes to midnight, what can be offered up. Peter, do you agree with that or do you think that no deal is now the most likely or the least unlikely scenario? I think I, I agree I agree with all of that. You know, I would have said almost exactly the same thing. I will say this. I, you know, I'm in and out of Brussels a lot and I've been talking to the same people consistently over over the last you know, two years. And in the last week or so, people who really would never seriously have thought about a no deal scenario are now talking about it with a very heavy heart, actually, in a way that they weren't before. And I think, you know, the assumption that Parliament would take back control 
you know, the, the Cooper Bowles amendment, I'm not sure what that fixes, you know, beyond an extension. And so whether you have a no deal in, on March 29th or you have a no deal on uh, June the 29th, I still, you know, you hear people discussing no deal in a way, you know, before it was a kind of, well, if we have a no deal, we can live with it, etc. But there is some quite detailed discussion going on about no deal. And I think people are now weighing up, weighing up the options as to how bad it would be and whether or not, you know, because in the end, uh, as James says, you know, the, the Irish have a veto over a trade deal. I mean, this is what the no dealers need to ask themselves. If you get a no deal, what happens? We, we can't sit in splendid North Korea in isolation. You know, we're going to end up having to go back to negotiate with them frankly, on our knees. And so they know that. And this is the problem, I think, is, is trying to access the five to midnight space. And, you know, people are really scratching their heads about how you do that. And finally, James, what's the next big day for Brexit, the next crunch day that we're expecting? I think it will be when the government will come back on February the 13th and this motion. There's some debate about whether the vote would have to be the next day or not, or whether they could use a procedure to put down the motion and then not have the vote straight away. Obviously, that next vote is, I think, crucial. because, And I think the, the big question is what happens to the Cooper Amendment then? Because I think the failure of the Cooper Amendment is revealing of something that we perhaps had underestimated, which is, I think it shows that Parliament still feels the mandate of that referendum in 2016. If there was a feeling that, that that mandate had slightly waned, it shows that MPs are still very reluctant to do anything which looks like it is directly kind of contradicting that. It's interesting that, you know, even before it came to a vote, they stripped out the bit of the Cooper Amendment, which talked about revoking Article 50 if the EU wouldn't agree to an extension. And I think, I think for the, as, as Peter says, that does suggest that no deal is more of a live possibility than, than some people had thought. So I think this is the, the, I think that is the next big day, is whether it's Valentine's Day or a few days after that, that is the moment, which is what happens then you know, if Parliament doesn't take back control then, then I think, you know, to, to use that trite phrase, then I think that you get to a position where Theresa May does have a chance, to, to borrow Peter's phrase, accessing that five minutes to midnight space. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast, at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. Next up, what's happening in Venezuela? The government doesn't publish its inflation figures, but some estimates are as high as 1.7 million percent. At the same time, Maduro is fighting to keep his crown. So what is life like for the ordinary Venezuelan during this time of turbulence? Noting that foie gras continues to be served in upmarket Caracas delicatessens, Stephen Gibbs writes in this week's issue that there are two types of Venezuelans, those who have dollars and those who don't. Stephen is the Times' man in Caracas and joins us now together with Joanna Rossiter, journalist for The Spectator. So Stephen, you are in Venezuela at the moment. What's it like? Well, these are certainly exciting times. For the first time, really, in 20 years of of socialist rule here, it does look like the government and the government led by President Maduro is on the back foot. We're looking towards a major protest this Saturday and I mean, what's happened is that the opposition have finally rallied around this relatively unknown new leader. And uh, it does seem that the wind is behind its sails, of course, but largely because all the important countries in this region, led by the United States, have declared him to be 
president of Venezuela. And all of this happening against a background of a total economic collapse here. And you've written about a striking encounter that you had with a a well-groomed man in a suit who told you that he was also very hungry. Uh, Are people finding it quite hard to comprehend what's going on and the sort of clutching to the trappings of normality to try to make sense of it all? Absolutely. I mean, this is this has been a collapse that has affected almost everyone in this country, apart from an elite that has dollars. It's been a, a middle class collapse. It's also really hit the poorest people here. And the sort of decline of life amongst particularly the middle class, it's so sort of obvious wherever you go that, I mean, a doctor is now earning less than £10 a month, teachers the same. And yet, despite all this, people do still go to work. You know, there's a sort of feeling of what else am I going to do? Let's try and continue and almost pretend that things aren't quite as bad as they really are and hold on to a bit of dignity. You know, it gives people a purpose in their life to to continue to to do what they've always done. And I I was taken aback last week when I was I went out into the the streets quite near where I lived to to ask people what they thought actually of of the latest developments here. And there was a man that really looked like he, you know, had just come out of work in an office, properly dressed or sort of business attire. And I asked him what he thought actually of Maduro's latest speech and he just sort of paused and said I'm hungry, you know. I've, I haven't, I can't afford food. This is becoming impossible. And this is a country in full-blown hyperinflation. 1.7 million percent is the estimated annual rate. The government has refused to give inflation figures anymore, but that's what the National Assembly says. Completely believable. Things are doubling in price around every three weeks here. And if you're earning a measly salary as everyone is, apart from the lucky few who've got dollars, then it is becoming impossible. And Joanna, you have friends in Venezuela as well. Is the situation similar for them? Yes, I do. And many of them are struggling to make ends meet. They don't have enough money to pay for their weekly shops. Their salaries, when they are fortunate enough to have a salary, are all tied up in the banks, which have huge queues outside them, only open at certain times. And many of them are turning to the black market to get hold of currency and basic medicines that they need um, for their health. Um, Friends there with uh, diabetes who don't have access to dialysis. Uh, The situation is pretty dire and very much in line with what Stephen is describing. There is, however, a bit of hope in the form of this figure, Juan Guaido, who has recently uh, declared himself as interim president of Venezuela. Um, So many of them are pinning their hopes on him to bring about a regime change in the near future. Can you tell us a little bit more about him? Yes, he's a relative newcomer to Venezuelan politics. He was only elected in 2015 um, to the Venezuelan parliament and he became leader of the National Assembly only a few weeks ago. Um, So it really is quite a meteoric rapid rise to the top of Venezuelan politics. I think he's been very clear about his criticism of both Maduro and Hugo Chavez before him. He was involved in student politics, criticising both regimes, and he's been mentored by Leopoldo Lopez, who is a very famous political prisoner in Venezuela. And that tells us a lot about where he's coming from politically. He founded a party called Voluntas Popular, which is a sort of centre-left 
Social Democrat Party, and he's been very clear about his aim, which is to restore democracy and prosperity to Venezuela. He seems to want to do things by the book as well. So he's gone around the country organising these cabildos, which roughly translates as town hall meetings. And this isn't just rabble-rousing on his part. It's actually a really important way of mounting a legal challenge to the Maduro regime. So it's in stark contrast to Maduro, who held these sham elections last May that were roundly dismissed by everyone from the EU to USA. He seems to want to do things differently, and he's being very careful, actually, to do things to be above board and to try and do things in line with the Venezuelan constitution. Stephen, do you think it will really work to replace Maduro, or will the country not just lurch into another crisis with a politician who actually disappoints? I think before we get to that stage, the opposition faces enormous challenges still in unseating uh, President Maduro. He really is still the leader of the country. He controls the army. He controls what's left of the economy. He controls most of the media. So, you know, to, to reach that tipping point, I'd first say is quite a long stretch even now. Once, if that does happen... There's sort of split opinion on this. I think a lot of people say that a turnaround wouldn't necessarily be that complicated or it wouldn't necessarily, you know, be impossible because this country is at such a low base to turn things around is feasible. Guaido is saying already, you know, we will appeal to international organisations like the IMF. The IMF has indicated, you know, it is prepared to give the massive financial aid that this country needs. Maduro has made it really impossible in many ways for international companies to operate here, certainly Western ones. Now, they'd all be supposedly invited back. So not an impossible challenge. The the real difficulty will be the political one. It's not really fair to say this is a a polarised or or divided country anymore because 80 to 90% of people are against Maduro. But there is a hard core that still believes in the so-called revolution here, and a lot of them are heavily armed. So there is a risk. Guaido says that that risk is overstated by the pro-government forces. Difficult times ahead, but I think, you know, not impossible to turn turn, turn the economy at least around. Joanna, do you think we'll see more intervention from the international community, particularly the US? Yes, there have been a lot of positive noises coming out of the White House in support of Juan Guaido. Both Trump and Mike Pence have publicly supported his decision to become interim president of Venezuela, but they've stopped short of offering any kind of military intervention. And I think this kind of international intervention will be absolutely vital in any attempt by Guaido to unseat Maduro. The military at the moment are under the control of Maduro and are not switching their allegiance. And I think getting that switch to happen is key to Guado's success. And any international support that can be offered will will obviously help with that process. It's a big deal for members of the military to switch their allegiance because a lot of them have vested interests in the Maduro regime. Political dissidents in the past in the military have been imprisoned and there have been reports of torture too. So it's not, not something that they will do lightly. The international support from the White House will certainly help with that process. And we have to remember that China and Russia are backing Maduro. So it's shaping up to be a a bit of an international power play between China and Russia on the side of Maduro and then the US and others on the side of Guado. So uh, what it will amount to, we'll get to see.
Stephen, would this intervention be a good thing long term? It's obviously quite controversial amongst the left in Britain. I, I think it would be extremely dangerous. And, you know, what form would it take? Is, you know, would special troops come here and, and, and try and, you know, get Maduro? That certainly is the sort of threat that we're hearing from Washington. But the practicalities are enormous. I mean, the, the challenges to do that. What we're hearing a little bit here is maybe the humanitarian aid that the United States is offering and uh, Guaido is saying, you know, we want, that may become some sort of auspice for uh, some sort of intervention. Maybe, you know, a, a ship full of aid, a hospital ship even, or or a convoy of humanitarian aid at the Colombian or Brazilian border, both which countries are now led by right-wing governments that are, that are very supportive of the US, maybe that would be a way that they try again to persuade the military forces here, the, the armed forces here, to give up Maduro. If you turn up with a whole lot of humanitarian aids and say, do you want this? Or do you want to carry on with the man who has destroyed the country? That may be the turning point. But in terms of, of an actual invasion, enormously complicated. Looking for a new podcast to add to the mix? Then why not join me, Katie Balls, for Women with Balls, the Spectator's latest podcast series. In it, I'll be sitting down with the trailblazers of today to talk about their career goals and what makes them tick. So far, we've had Emma Barnett, and that's now available. Later this month, I'll be speaking to Liz Truss, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, as well as a host of other names. I do hope you'll join me. And you can find us on Spectator Radio. And finally, why use an induction hob? You must have seen them around, or perhaps you're a convert already. These sleek hobs don't create fire at all, and instead cook with a magnetic current. They're meant to be safer and more efficient than gas hobs, but Ascender Max Tone Graham writes in this week's Spectator lamenting the loss of warmth, literally and metaphorically, in induction. Ascender joins me now along with James Ramsden, a Michelin star chef who is a fan of induction hobs. So, Ascender, why do you have a problem with induction hobs? Well, I have to say, I don't have one myself, but it's just that a friend of mine was, and other friends I've heard of are being cajoled into making this technological leap. Coerced? Yes, coerced by their architects, by kitchen shops. This is the way things are going. It's more environmentally friendly, safer. You're, you find yourself being lured away from what I think of the time-honoured way of cooking, which is something glowing orange underneath a saucepan. These things, to me, seem dead black slabs. So it's the experience that... You- you lose. I think so really. I, for me cooking is a very warming thing to the soul as well as the food and it, I, I've seen induction hobs working. I've inspected my friends putting them under putting it on under, under the soup and it just seems to me rather cleverly scientific and brilliant but deadening. So James explain how an induction hob works. Um, I really thought we weren't going to have to get too scientific. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's, it's, uh, I'm not, it's, it's basically magnets, right? So it uh, fires the heat directly into the pot you're using, which, can, which means that certain materials don't work, so you can't use a copper pan. But the idea is that it's a far more efficient way of cooking. You have far more control over what you're, uh, what's in the pan, you know, from sort of a very, very gentle simmer to a big roiling boil. And so it's way more uh, sort of ecologically friendly, it's a much more efficient way of cooking, 
But for me, that's all quite a boring um, sort of red herring in a way. I mean, I know Sender's sort of all about the romance of gas, which, you know, gas and romance tend not to be associated <laughs> with one another in a positive sense. But, you know, the romance of cooking is is about the whole experience from preparing the ingredients to what's in the pot to the smells in the kitchen to what finally goes on the table. And for me, the kind of what you're cooking on can be a bit of a red herring, except for the fact that induction is is actually really lovely to cook on I find and you use it professionally not professionally so in the kitchens at the restaurant maybe that was uh, that's confused everyone mm, I wanted to hear um, about where the restaurants are doing it more and more and things and well other. they are because mm. in a professional setting you know the heat in a kitchen is just absolutely appalling so to have the major source of that heat actually be not firing out heat every which way you avoid I don't know if you're allowed to swear on here but um there's Go a famous it. thing called chef's arse and sort of the, the likelihood of that is greatly diminished. <laughs> Tell us if, what chef's arse is. Just serious chapping, I think, just from <laughs> yeah. the, the temperature of the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, professional kitchens. I mean, I think the first one that I was aware, was aware of was uh, Dinner by Heston, which I think opened in 2011 and I think their kitchen's all induction. It's just a much more sort of peaceful environment and tempers tend not to fray quite so aggressively when um, the sort of ambient temperature is not that. So it's good for the soul as well as the backside? You could say that, you could say that. I think that's a nice... So we're arguing, soul against soul, I'm arguing for the orange glow and you're arguing for the, you're arguing for the calm and mm. peace. But it's not good for the heart... Explain that. Yes, big notice on the kitchen department at John Lewis. Please consult your doctor if, before you buying this hob if a pacemaker is fitted. And so what if you have a pacemaker, can you just not use the induction hob or are there special instructions you have to follow? Well, as I say, I looked it up on, on the Heart Matters website and, and there is a special induction hob section which says that if you have an induction hob, you need to stand at least two feet away from the saucepan, which seems to be quite a long way to stand, really. You need a very long wooden spoon for that. You wouldn't know if your way. food was burning, surely be a good way of getting out of having to cook um i'm allergic to potatoes uh, when in their raw form they make me sneeze terribly so i if we're doing roast potatoes i have to say i'm really sorry i can't peel these you're gonna have to do it for me so sometimes medical i'm not comparing having slight allergy to uh, having a pacemaker by the way but you know it's a good it's a good duck out if you but don't want to cook one of the problems with induction hobs that, that we haven't yet touched on is the fact it's so hard to get them to work now i, I have my own induction hob trauma actually where i was staying in an airbnb and had all the Absolutely. wonderful materials for a cooked breakfast and couldn't get the damn thing to work this because absolutely sort of common. fiddling with all these strange knobs and then I accidentally locked the cooker oh and yes I had the right pans because they were supplied so that was a relief but in the end <laughs> we didn't have a cooked breakfast you didn't have a cooked breakfast yeah, and I thought feature. it was because I was stupid mm. but you say yes, it's not no, thank you very common I mean a friend of mine who's a caterer says it's a nightmare for her going to other people's kitchens different they're all different and you know press a, just press a lock feature by mistake and you have to then work out how to unlock it, which can involve holding it down for 15 seconds, but how are you to know that? James, are you just smarter than the rest of us? No, they're, they're, Did you especially have problems? the early induction models are, are completely baffling, and I, I sort of have to agree with you on the sort of the endless prodding you have to do of of the thing to get it up to temperature or down because mm, the instinctive thing when you want to turn your as i say scrambled egg one of those you just down a tiny fraction as with a knob this one you have to go nine eight seven six five four three i mean that to me is counterintuitive and 
Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to put much of an argument out there. Um, they, they <laughs> You're are not really selling these things particularly well, well, are you, James? These, as I say, these are the early models, and the more recent ones, and the one I have at home actually has Twizzly knobs as well, so it's, it's far easier to control. But, but um, apparently Airbnbs are, you know, this is, it's a, they're the scourge of Airbnbs because if you're decorating a lettable kitchen, it's the easiest, by far the easiest, most environment-friendly, cheapest. Mm. Are they and also then, not just a status symbol? Oh, I don't know about that. Well, the Bosch one says it makes a stylish statement in your kitchen, as I think it makes a sort of a dead statement in your kitchen. I'm, I'm, I'm quite fussy in terms of the general cleanliness and tidiness mm. of a kitchen, and I think one thing induction has heavily over gas is they take four seconds to clean, yeah, no, as I opposed to that. having to mess around cleaning all the metal grates and then wiping around. And... That is no fun, although some say they're harder to clean to make them look as lovely as they do in the shop, but actually it takes a lot of scrubbing with a particular kind of... Depends how often you're scrubbing, I suppose, but... But I think this is more, less about cooking in my article, more about the whole scientification of our, of our lives, this pr- pressure to make that leap. And, and, I, and someone this morning compared it with Keyless Cars, which also is so clever, but actually don't work. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's an easy point to score, but mm. there would have been a time when cooking on gas was suddenly incredibly... Yeah, you're right. ...incredibly progressive and ridiculous. You're We've right. got this perfectly good yeah. wood to cook yeah, on. Yeah, I know, it's um, true. Why don't we just stick to that? <laughs> Stick to making jacket yes. potatoes in the bonfire. And that's all for this week. If you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe, rate and review on the iTunes store. We would love to hear from you. Pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in the podcast, as well as more from Robert Plowman, Ian Rankin and Eliza Seagrave. And our special podcast offer is about to end. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator for just £12, plus a free John Lewis voucher worth £20 when you subscribe. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher to get the deal. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. Mm